you have been selected and sworn as jurors or as alternate jurors in this case to try the case of the state of Oklahoma against Catherine Rutan Pollard. The defendant is charged with the crime of murder in the first degree by an information filed with the state. Catherine's new attorneys were court appointed. They successfully got the trial moved from Woodward County to Alva, about 65 miles northeast. Catherine's defense attorneys convinced the judge that media coverage made it impossible for their client to get a fair trial in Woodward. On August 22, 2007, more than five years after Logan went missing, Catherine was a 32-year-old woman sitting in a courtroom on trial for the murder of her son. The defendant has pled not guilty, and the plea of not guilty puts in issue each element of the crime with which the defendant is charged. A plea of not guilty requires the state to prove each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant is presumed innocent of the crime, and the presumption continues, unless after a consideration of all the evidence you're convinced of her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Wedded in a common law marriage, Catherine had taken the last name Pollard. She wore a white business suit and blue floral blouse with a string of white pearls as she faced the man determined to put her behind bars for life. From NewsOK.com and The Oklahoman, I'm Josh Delaney. You are listening to Looking for Logan Tucker, Part 4, Trials and Tribulations. Chris Ross was a special prosecutor with brown eyes and brown hair cropped close and a neatly trimmed goatee. Judge Ray Linder called the court to order and asked Chris if he was prepared to make his opening statement. In June 2002, Logan Tucker was a six-year-old boy who's living in Woodward, Woodward County, state of Oklahoma. And on the early mornings of June, the early morning hours of June 23, 2002, he was breathing his last breath of life. And the reason he was doing so, quite simply, is because he was in the way of the defendant's desire to live a different lifestyle. And this desire was not something fleeting or momentary. The evidence will show that as far back as 1999, she had made comments to people regarding her dislike of her not wanting to have children and to have them interfere with the lifestyle she wanted to live. During his hour-long opening statement, Chris talked about the tape, the spot of blood, the candle wax, and the hair found in the basement candle wax on Catherine's shirt the same day Logan disappeared, the shovel and plastic and rope in Catherine's car, the men Catherine married and their accounts of her erratic behavior and obsession with Logan, her conflicting stories in the aftermath of her son's disappearance, interviews with Justin, Logan's four-year-old little brother. Chris faced Larry Jordan, one of Catherine's court-appointed attorneys. During his half-hour opening statement, Jordan said Chris had nothing on Catherine. 
The evidence showed only that Logan was missing, that Catherine was innocent. Jordan soaked his opening remarks in Oklahoma rhetoric, including references to Wild West violence. Now, the state took you through a great deal of, of what they purport to be evidence in this case. In some cases, what they've said is different than what I remember. I'm not going to go through it all at this time and tell you what I think, first of all, they think, because it's really not important what I think. I mean, that's just, just the reality of it. The thing that's important is what you think. What we're, we're going to try to do is, is present information to you so you can determine what the facts are. Because that's the way the system's supposed to work. Because if it wasn't for y'all, Mr. Olson ought to be out in, out in the parking lot having a fist fight to try to settle this out. Or if you want to go back further in time, somebody be hiring gunfighters to, to shoot out in the streets. During the nine-day trial, Chris called Aaron Henry to the witness stand. She was an investigator with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Henry testified that she determined that Logan's blood DNA was on the wad of tape found in the basement. Between 100 and 200 small hairs were found on the tape. Henry said Logan's DNA was on the hairs. It was Stevens who had moved into an apartment near Catherine back in the summer of 2002. He set up audio and video equipment and recorded Catherine saying her problems with Logan would be motive to murder him. Ross called Catherine's family to testify. There was Mickey Cathcart, one of her brothers. He never had Logan. The last time I probably saw my nephew was when he was three years old. Mickey Cathcart was the one who called the sheriff's office on Catherine on July 7, 2002 to check on Logan. He had called the sheriffs at the urging of their adoptive parents, Ronald and Carolyn Cathcart in Florida. It had been a while since they had heard from Logan. Ronald Cathcart was in the delivery room when Logan was born. He testified that Catherine lied when she told DHS that Logan had a twin sister who died at birth. Cathcart said that prior to Logan's disappearance, on June 23, 2002, he received a call from the little boy. There was a, a call that uh, Logan was the one that asked, if she, uh, he was on the phone when she called. Uh, when the call came in, why well, he was the one that talked to us and asked if he could come live with us. Chris also called Logan's father, Robert Tucker, who revealed more information surrounding Logan's birth. And prior to marrying her, or shortly thereafter, did you uh, have a conversation about her being pregnant? She said she couldn't get pregnant. Okay. Did she tell you what? She said she had cervical cancer, she had something removed, and the uterus were tilted, and she couldn't have babies. Did you later find out differently? Yes, she got pregnant. Did she have an explanation for that? No. And was a child produced from that? Yes. And... Uh, what was the child's name? Logan. Logan Tucker? Yes. And how long um, after she became pregnant did you remain together? Not very long. And in, after he had been missing for a considerable period of time, did you file an action to obtain custody? Yes, I did. And would you tell the jurors why you did that? 
because if he's found, I'd be responsible for a burial or him, whatever. You did not have any idea of where he was, no. anything like that? Brian Marquardt also testified. He was the brother whom Catherine accused of taking Logan back east. He said he was in Maryland the day Logan disappeared. When he was dismissed from the witness stand, he told the court what he thought of Catherine. Why I just want to see her get hanged. Mr. Marquardt, you, 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 you've got to be good at what you say, yes, sir. During the trial, Chris played tapes of Monty Clem's interviews with Justin, Logan's brother, who was four years old when Logan disappeared. During one interview, Justin used crayons to draw a picture of Logan. When Monty Clem asked Justin about Logan's head in the picture, Justin responded with one word, broke. Linda Semmel took the stand. She was a DHS county director in 2002. On July 15, 2002, about three weeks after Logan disappeared, Semmel and Christy Castor, a child welfare worker, were driving Justin back to Woodward from Oklahoma City after taking him for a forensic interview. Justin wanted to hunt for roly-polies. They let him decide where they would go to hunt. Justin had the investigators drive into the country, along Lakeview Drive, toward Knight Road. And what happened then? Christy, myself, and Justin all got out of the car and started walking around, and he would point to a, you know, a rock, and he wouldn't turn the rock over. So I'd turn the rock over for him, and we began looking for Rolly Polly's. And, and uh, so why this place? And he said, well, him and his mama had came out here before, and she had a shovel. I was like, well, why did she have a shovel? And he said, well, to dig flowers. Said, okay. And then um, I said, well, did you... Did, did you get flowers? And he was like, no. My mama went over the fence and went out into the grass. I said, what would she do out there? And he said, I don't know. Christy Castor testified too. She said Justin suddenly became fearful and didn't want to be where he saw his mother with a shovel. Yes, once he talked about his mother going down into the grass, he turned around and faced me and he was saying, you know, hold me, hold me, hold me. And I picked him up and carried him to the car. He was ready to leave. Castor also testified that Justin wanted to go to Michael Petty's house in Fort Supply. They drove by Petty's house, and Justin said that was where Catherine got the shovel and plastic. Continuing their roly-poly hunt, they drove past a cemetery, and Justin mentioned that farther down the road was a tree that had been chopped down. When they stopped at the tree, Justin was scared to get out of the car. Later... Caster and investigators visited the site. What did you see there? I saw um, right where the there was like a stump and then the tree had fallen down. Right about in this location, there was a hole that was consistent with like a dig mark. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to ask you your age, but I assume you've seen, seen a hole dug before. Yes. Have you seen a hole dug with a shovel before? Yes, I was raised on the farm. <laughs> and what did it appear to be? It appeared to be a mark with the shovel where the ground was too hard. It was deeper in the middle. Then on the sides it was more of a pointed shovel than a square or a big, like a wheat or grain shovel. It wasn't one of those. 
Caster also testified that Justin had seen Logan with tape over his eyes and mouth. And later, that Catherine told him Logan was with his uncle Brian. You remember FBI agent Ron Parrish, who interviewed Justin in the summer of 2002. On August 2nd that year, he also took Justin for a drive. Caster joined them. Justin again directed them along Lakeview Drive toward Knight Road in Woodward. And as we're driving down Knight's Road, it drove all the way down it until it changes from gravel or dirt to pavement. And he said, turn around here. And I asked him why, and he said, because Mom turned around here. So I turned around and drove back, and he had me stop on the side of the road, on the north side of the road, and I asked him, you know, why are we stopped? He said, because it's where Mom stopped. Uh, what did he tell you about what happened after his mother stopped? Okay, the, uh, he said that his mom had gotten out here and had crossed the fence on the north side of the road and had taken a uh, shovel and a long piece of plastic or vinyl uh, and walked and he pointed in the direction it was either northern or northwest direction from that point uh, into the field. Did he t- tell you anything else uh, on that interview? Uh, yes, as we was uh, leaving there, he started to talk more about Logan and about what went on uh, that morning as we was driving away. And uh, what he told us was that uh, that morning that that happened, his mother had dressed Logan uh, in a blue chair in the living room in Melanie's house and that he was sick but he wasn't crying, he wasn't talking or anything and uh, he described the clothes that she had on him as a t-shirt, some uh, jeans and uh, some black sandals and I think I asked him if they were sandals or shoes and he said no they were sandals Okay. and uh, then he said that it's like she had to carry him from the house to her car and put him in the back seat of the car. And then they had, I guess, at some point had drove out there. Okay. Did he indicate to you um, whether or not Logan was talking or moving while they were in the car? Uh, he said that he wasn't, he was sick, but that he wasn't crying and he wasn't talking and uh, I asked him if he had any color in his eyes and he said he couldn't see any color in his eyes. They also took Justin on a drive to Fort Supply. Justin had them stop at an old farm property. He told them his mother had taken him there before. There were two rundown houses on the west side of the property. The first one looked like a house with a basement in it and Justin said his mother had gone inside it. He and Parrish and Christy Castor explored the house, even going into the basement. They found nothing. As they were leaving the house, Justin told them his mother had gone into the remains of a wooden building nearby. As they were walking back to the car, Justin started talking about the last time he saw his brother, Logan. Did you have occasion to discuss his skin color? Uh, yes. The, uh... 
I possibly asked him what color was his skin or something like this and he said he was white and I was like well how white and I compared my skin and Christy's skin and his skin to Justin or to Logan and he said no he's whiter than all of us did he tell you anything that his mother had told him uh, yes uh, he said that uh, the reason Logan had to go away was because he was bad. During an August 8, 2002 interview with Parrish, Justin again said that Catherine had put white tape on Logan's eyes and his mouth. And that suitcase that sanitation worker Mark Bell said he saw on Texas Avenue in Woodward around the time Logan disappeared in 2002. Did there ever come a point in time when you realized you were missing a piece of luggage? Yes. Chris called Melody Lennington to the witness stand. You'll recall that she was the prison guard who let Catherine and the boys stay with her in Woodward. And what was it? A blue suitcase. And was it a suitcase that had some type of meaning to you so you would notice that it was gone? Yes, it was my father's. Okay. And where was it the last time you had seen it? In the back room, in a closet. What did it all mean? Tape, candle wax, a shovel, plastic, trips into the country and past a cemetery. Chris gave me a lot of insight into how he prosecutes cases. Less is more, he said. Don't get into the weeds with stuff you don't need to prove. The best prosecutors can botch a case this way. Think of the OJ trial and the glove that didn't fit, he said. Stuff like that. Chris never said that Logan was buried. All he had to do was prove that there was a death of a child under 18, that the death was caused by willful or malicious injury or use of unreasonable force, and that it was caused by the defendant. In an email, Chris said he believes the evidence showed that Justin accompanied Logan and Catherine on two burial trips on Monday, June 24, 2002, after picking up the shovel and plastic from Michael Petty's house. The theory was that Catherine borrowed the shovel and plastic to bury Logan, but because it was so hot in western Oklahoma at that time of year, the ground may have been too hard to actually dig. Catherine may have left him out in the countryside somewhere and later went back with Justin to pick him up and put him in the suitcase. But exactly what she did and in what order she did it, Chris says we may never know. But Chris also believes that it's clear from Catherine's many actions and statements that she was the person who caused Logan's death, which is really what the law required him to prove. During Catherine's trial, Justin took the stand too, with his mother in the courtroom occasionally dabbing her eyes. Justin was nine years old. It was more than five years after his brother went missing. Do you remember when the last time you saw Logan was? Uh, when she left him at some house where a man lived. Okay. And when you said she, who are you talking about? About my mom. Okay. Let's talk about that. How Were you there? Yeah. And where were you? How did you all get there? By car. Okay. Whose car were you in? <clears throat> my mom's. And who was in the car? Logan, me, and my mom. Okay. Do you remember where you were sitting? I was sitting in the back seat with Logan. Okay. Was Logan talking? No. Was he moving? No. 
Okay. And you said you went to a house? Is that what you said? Yeah. Did but but she parked on a curve and left me in the car and took Logan to the house. Okay. How did Logan get to the house? Did he walk or did she carry? She carried him. Okay. And did you see her actually go in the house? No. How come? Because, well, where she parked at the curve, there were trees where I couldn't see the house and I didn't see her go in. Okay. And so when she came back, did she have Logan with her? No. Did you ever see him again after that? No. Larry Jordan, the court-appointed attorney for Catherine, seized on Justin's testimony about going to a house and Catherine giving Logan to a man. The memories that you you discussed just now with Chris, is that your specific memory of, of that event? You, you clearly remember everything you talked about? Yeah. Okay. Now you remember Monty? Yeah. He's the one what had the heart attack. Yes. Do you remember talking to Monty more times than just the, the day you took him out to show him the house? Yeah. Do you remember how many times you came back to talk to Mr. Monty? Uh, well, well three, and, three, but he came to our house twice. Okay. Do you remember one of those times when you talked to him, telling him anything about your, your mother coming back to the car after she and Logan went to the house to get her purse? Yeah. And did that happen? Yeah. Okay. When Logan got out of the car out of that man's house, do you remember him getting out by himself? Actually, he didn't get out. Logan didn't get out? No. Okay, do you remember him going to the house? Yeah. And both of you riding in the back seat? Yeah. Okay. Before he, he went to the house, did he open the car door himself? No. But you recall seeing, seeing a man through the window, right? Yeah. Is the purse all that your, your mother carried up to that house? Yeah. Do you remember if it was daytime or nighttime? It was like in the afternoon, evening. Okay. Investigators discovered the house had been unoccupied for 20 years. Jordan also called to the witness stand a child psychologist with expertise in forensic interviews of children. He testified that a child's memory is more reliable the closer they are to an event as opposed to years later. Things like seeing someone with a shovel and plastic, as Evelyn Petty had. Jordan also examined Mark Bell, the sanitation worker who picked up the suitcase on Texas Avenue in Woodward. Would I be correct in assuming that the the uh, trash you picked up that day in or around the suitcase was not in front of of uh, Melanie Lennington's house? Yes. Basically, it was across the street and down some, right? Right. And is that a place where Melanie Lennington or that address normally would, would place trash to be, be dumped? No, sir. And again, you never did either at that location or at the dump or any place in between that location and the dump 
open that, that suitcase up? No, sir. And you don't know who put it there? No, sir. You uh, don't recall exactly when you, you picked it up, correct? No, sir. Um, could it have been the week before June 22nd or the week after 20, June 22nd? It was before. Before June 22nd? Right. Okay. Nothing further, Your Honor. When Chris cross-examined Bell, Bell said it may have been after June 22nd, 2002, that he picked up the blue suitcase. Jordan called three witnesses who claimed to have seen Logan. There was Patricia Meyer, who said she saw Logan at the Domino convenience store in Woodward around June 23rd, the day he disappeared. Meyer said Logan was with a man between 5'8 and 6 feet tall, with a medium build and sandy blonde hair. Well, he filled up his vehicle outside and then Logan had come in and he came in and paid for his gas and... Okay, what did Logan do? He was interested in a, the, a claw machine that we had that he was sitting there trying, you know, he was playing with it, acting like he was playing it and stuff. Mm -hmm. There was Amber York, who claimed to have seen a boy on July 14, 2002, at Bixhoma Lake in Oklahoma, about four hours east of Woodward. Um, what I remember is just, you know, a normal Sunday fishing with the family and a little boy playing with my children. And, um, you know, the, the kids, let, you know, I let them play with the kids. And that was about it. Okay, did you have an opportunity to meet the man they were, that boy was with? I don't remember meeting the man. I just really remember the little boy. Okay, did you ever get an opportunity to talk with the boy? I don't recall. There was Jennifer Kahn, who said she saw Logan with a man and a woman, also on July 14, 2002 at a concert hall in Tulsa, about 45 minutes east of Bixoma Lake. You know, like a 20, it wasn't 21 and older, but it was just something where adults should be, and there was a little boy there. Uh, you know, it's just not something that, that's what caught my eye. Was. Due to that unusual circumstance, did you pay a little more attention to the little boy than you would normally have done? Oh yes, oh yes. Okay, and do you recall who that child was with? He was with a woman the most of the time, the whole time, and they, as they, they sat on the stage the whole time, and there was a member of the band that that part that was with, not necessarily with them the whole time, that between sets or whatever would come and talk to him, and during the song he might, you know stand next to him or whatever, but he was with a woman most of the, the whole time, I should say. In addition to these witnesses, who claimed to have seen Logan, Catherine's defense entered two other pieces of eyewitness testimony for the record. There was Bill and Patricia Flock, a married couple who claimed to have seen Logan at Domino, the gas and convenience store, around June 23, 2002. In response, Chris called to the stand Teresa Sterling, an Oklahoma City police officer, who had been assigned to investigate missing person cases. Sterling said it was common for those cases to turn into homicide cases, and yet people would still call the police, claiming they saw the murder victim. 
you you could get up from from two to fifty to a hundred. I mean, it, there were a lot of people that wanted to help and believe that they saw the victims. And then you didn't think these people were lying. No. They just they honestly believed it. Absolutely. And in and in many of these cases, or in some of these cases, did you later find the victim to be deceased and could not have been the person they saw? That was usually what we found. On August 31st, 2007, Catherine sat silently in court as her attorney delivered his closing argument on her behalf. Larry Jordan offered no alternative explanation for what happened to Logan. Instead, he tried to poke holes in the state's case, saying investigators badgered Logan's little brother, Justin, into saying Catherine buried him somewhere. Let's talk about the state says that Justin said there's tape on his eyes, tape on his mouth. I think probably a, we could we could say that, that I've got a little disagreement about, about what that was they were talking about was tape on the eyes. It sounded to me when I listened to the tape and put the food in his mouth and all this, it sounded like the little boy had a microphone in his or a tape recorder in his hand and he was talking to be talking. It sounded like he was telling the story and making up as he goes. But let's assume that there was tape on his eyes. Let's assume there was tape on his mouth. They would have you believe that the tape that was on his eyes and his mouth are the same tape where they found the head hair and a spot of blood as big as the end of this pen. And that's supposed to be proof that something happened, <clears throat> that Logan's dead. I believe that that masking tape, according to to Ms. Henry, was wadded up and was basically a continuous strand along with the rope. That's my recollection. There's a photo of it, so you'd be able to look at that. But if it's a continuous strand, it's not logical that, that you'd be put over the eyes and the mouth in the manner that, that Justin described. What about that bike rally Catherine went to and danced topless at? a week after Logan went missing. State brought up those photos out to Pax Saddle Rally. Did it prove something? Sure. They proved Katie made a real bad decision. She exhibited her body and didn't win anything. She exhibited her body for very little reason for other people to gain from it. Bad decision. That one week after Logan left, did it prove she killed him? Prove she, she got in contest and exhibited her body. That's what it proves. In his closing argument on behalf of Catherine, Jordan said Chris had nothing but a patchwork of tales and anecdotes. The state has presented a whole lot of information you fancy gimmicks, and I don't have any of those. The reality of what we're dealing with is stories, and that's, that's long and short of it. You know, the, the state wants to pile all this stuff up and keep piling these little bits of nothing up, really. No single piece of the information they got proves any one of those three elements. They don't have to prove the a murder weapon. They don't have to prove anything, except they do have to prove the child died. And they're saying they proved this by all these little pieces of information that doesn't have anything to do with the child or death. Just information. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, I don't care how high you call manure, it's still manure. I submit that if I've not had not reached 
their burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to find she's not guilty. Chris didn't take kindly to Jordan's remarks during his closing statement. But with a burden of proof on the state of Oklahoma, he got the last word. Chris attempted to connect dots for the jurors, including investigators finding candle wax on the tape and hair and blood in the basement at Texas Avenue, and Catherine having candle wax on her the day after Logan went missing. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to first start responding to a few of the things Mr. Jordan said. And he said me and him may not agree, and I would say that would put it mildly. He wanted to say this is a case about stories. This isn't a case about stories. This is a case about the death of a young boy and the circumstantial evidence that proves it. But this is not about a burial and finding a grave. If we thought he was buried, we would not have been presenting to you the fact that across the street from her house, was a show, was a suitcase wrapped in plastic and taped up or tied up seven ways to Sunday with rope, both of which were later found in her car. And when the trash man Mark Bell went to throw it in the truck or started to open it before putting it in the truck, he looks across the street and sees a woman standing between the Lennington house and the Chambers house staring at him. And so he doesn't open. That's what led to the trip, the landfill search. He says this pack settled things about bad choices. It's not bad cho- about bad choices. It's about the fact that there is absolutely no question that just on the Sunday before, her son has disappeared forever. She's involved in it, and she's out there having the time of her life. There is absolutely no question in any of your mind that she knows exactly where he is and she was given the choice. Tell or we're going to come after you for murder. That's what Monty Clint told her. And she didn't tell. And the only rational explanation for that is because he was already dead because she killed him. And she couldn't say... This is where he is because that would mean a murder charge too. You have to follow the evidence and what the evidence tells you is he's dead and she did it and that's a tough thing to swallow and a tough thing to write on a piece of paper. We're going to ask you to return a verdict that delivers justice and speaks the truth. And that's a verdict of guilty on the charge of murder in the first degree. It was 3.31 p.m. on August 31st, 2007, when the nine-member jury of five men and four women retired to deliberate. They returned to the courtroom at 5.47 p.m. We, the jury impaneled and sworn in the above-entitled cause due upon our oaths find as follows. Defendant is guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree and set punishment at life in prison without the possibility of parole. Signed, Larry G. Parker, four-person. Catherine bowed her head. She showed no emotion while Judge Linder read the verdict. A few weeks later, on October 9, 2007, Catherine was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Chris was the first person I interviewed for this story. In fact, 
there was only going to be one story. A feature on how Chris and prosecutors like him successfully try murder cases when the victim's body is never found. That all changed when I found Justin and Monty Clem's widow, Pam. I interviewed Chris over the phone and in an office in Ada, Oklahoma, as well as at his home. He was patient with my questions and welcoming. The case had clearly affected him. I wish his body was found. Generally, the satisfaction I would get from cases wasn't what happened to the person, the defendant. It was more pride in your work, your preparation, your performance, as opposed to, well, great, this person got life in prison. Because, you know, with most people you think, well, okay, they've got family too that didn't have anything to do with this and those people are going to suffer as well. But in this case, uh, given that, you know, she had another son, uh, I didn't have those feelings about her. I was a prosecutor for 34 years. And there are very few people that you deal with. I mean, we deal with people who have done horrible things. But very few people in 34 years, maybe I would say less than 20 people I've met that I thought were actually evil. And she's one of them. Chris had started to write a book about the case, but he got frustrated. The book was to be a tribute to his friend, Monty Clem. Monty is the hero of the case. He, he, he did such a good investigation, put it together, um, and he was alive through preliminary hearing. He testified at preliminary hearing. So he was able to get just about everything. You know, when we would talk and I'd ask him for something, bang, he went out and got it. Uh, I missed having him there. Like the people of Woodward, Chris still thinks about Justin, too. Wondered how he turned out, how he'd be doing, because, you know, what the evidence was that as a four-year-old, he went basically on a burial trip with his mother and brother, who was already dead. When I asked Chris if Logan was in a northwest Oklahoma landfill, he suggested Logan was in heaven. But if he were ever to be found, a burial might bring some comfort to everyone involved in the case. My belief is that he's at the same place regardless of whether he was buried or not. My spiritual belief. I think it'd be good for the family. I think it'd be good for the community. I think it'd be decent. It might even be good for her. I wondered if Catherine would talk to me. Wondered if she would tell me what she did and where Logan was. Maybe there was something inside of her ready to talk. In April of 2018, I wrote her at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center in McLeod, Oklahoma. I told her I wanted to hear her side of the story. A couple of months later, on June 6th, I received a phone call at the Oklahoman. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call will be monitored and recorded, except for privileged calls with attorneys. Well, hello. Looking for Logan Tucker is brought to you by The Oklahoman. Written by Josh Delaney. Produced by Paige Dillard. Dave Morris. 
and Phil O'Connor. Engineered by Todd Frazier and Greg Singleton. In the next episode of Looking for Logan Tucker, Catherine tells her side of the story. <laughs>